My name is David. I'm one of the bishops here. Um, I do have a little bit, actually a lot of bit of a little complex this morning. So our sweet little, I hope she's watching this, our sweet little short wife of the cowboy that is among us in the first service came walking up to me this morning and she stopped and she looked up and she said, what did you do to your head? And I said, what do you mean? She said, you don't have any hair. I said, well, I didn't think I ever had any hair. And she said, but, and where are your glasses? I don't even know who you are. And I said, well, they're broken and I can't see hardly anything. So my notes this morning, I can't see the clock. That's maybe not a good thing. And I have printed out my notes in size 20 font. <laughs> and every time I blink my eyes, something else happens and it gets blood, not bloody, buzz, blurry. There we go, blurry, blurry and fuzzy. So I welcome you to pray with me and for me maybe for yourself, <laughs> as we work through this. 10 days from today. How many of you have finished, don't lie, finished, you're done shopping right now? Really? That's just not even right. <laughs> All right, you don't count. For the rest of us, how many of you are enjoying still looking for that best deal? Raise your hand. All right, some of you are Cyber Monday people, Black Friday people. I'm going to let you in on a little confession, a little hint. The best time to find the best deal is December 24th, Christmas Eve. I discovered this about eight years ago. You drive into Cool Springs on Christmas Eve morning, there is nobody around. The people at the store are standing there greeting you with smiles and patience, and they're so kind, and everything is marked down, and I buy about 95% of all my gifts on Christmas Eve, and I walk out thinking, I got the best deal, and it's awesome. There's something about that word, best. It's a, you English nerds, it's a superlative. All yeah, right. There's something that's in our DNA. It's like it's hardwired into us in this condition of our humanity. It's almost as if we're on this sliding scale where we're constantly assessing, comparing ourselves to go from good, better, and then if you can be that one guy that can be the best, then you rock. Achieving not just comparative adjectives, but to get to the place where it's superlative, not just great, not even greater, but to be the great test. I call it the ultimate desire to be or achieve, not zen, but est. And this is not new. Think with me, we've been going through Mark. Journey back 2,000 years ago, Jesus, they're coming from Capernaum. They're on the road walking together. The 12 disciples are with Jesus. And Jesus, for the second time, is sharing something that should have rocked their world. He's actually prophesying and foretelling that he's going to die. He's going to be buried and he's going to raise again. The disciples aren't listening. And so he interrupts their conversation and says, hey, guys, guys, what are you talking about? And the scripture says that they actually don't want to answer Jesus like he didn't know what they were talking about because they're embarrassed because they're debating among themselves who among the 12 is going to be the, the est, the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
We're going to jump right into our text. Turn with me um, to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses, 12, uh, verses 28 to 34. As we dive into this paragraph of scripture, a little bit of context. This is, it's, it's striking, it's, it's sobering to place ourselves in this moment. It is Tuesday of the very last week of our Jesus and his life on this earth. In three days, he will go to the cross and he will experience an excruciating death for us. So it's Tuesday. Religious leaders up to this point, they don't like Jesus, they're trying to trip him up. They've already attempted three times to come with Jesus with these manipulative, tricky questions to be able to use against him a plot to finally destroy, to kill him. And now for the fourth time, there comes a religious leader, a teacher of the law, a Rudy Giuliani, if you want to think of it that way, a lawyer, prominent lawyer, to test Jesus, Matthew in his gospel says. So his motivations at the beginning would appear not to be very sincere. He's out to get Jesus. Now, as we read the text here in just a moment, I want you to just think through as a schematic, as an outline, four exchanges that are taking place. It's really a conversation between this one scribe and Jesus of Nazareth. Look for these four things. First of all, a tricky question, followed by a right answer, followed up again by a humble affirmation, and finally from Jesus, a conflicting assessment. So just look for that, kind of frame the text that way as we read it. Here we go. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law, this would be a scribe, came and heard them, the Sadducees, with the previous text and Jesus, debating about the resurrection. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Est, greatest. Jesus, verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Verse 32, the humble affirmation. Well said, teacher. The man replied, you were right. This is coming from a scribe. You were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The backdrop being the temple where all of that is going on. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, and this is where we're gonna spend much of our time this morning, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Verse 28, very quickly, move through the exchange, the progression, the tricky question. Why is it tricky? Why would it be so hard to zone in and to identify the greatest command? It's fascinating in Jewish law and culture of all of the Mosaic laws, in addition to the actual laws that are recorded in the Pentateuch or the, the Torah, if you would call it as a, a Jewish person, 
there are hundreds of Mosaic laws. But in addition to those laws, the rabbis would come along and they would interpret those laws and then there would be traditions that would develop out of those interpretations. And so they finally decided we need a set number of laws that we can hold each other accountable to to be able to keep. So here's what they did. We need a set number. So they decided in a spiritual context to look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and literally this is what they did. They counted how many Hebrew letters it took to write out all the Ten Commandments and guess how many there are. So 613 laws. But of those 613, it didn't stop there. They decided to split them up. And so they counted all the do's and all the don'ts and came up with 248 do's. And get this, interestingly, 365 don'ts. Why 365 don'ts? Because you need to don't every day of the year. Kind of sounds like the culture some of us grew up in, right? Not many do's, but don't, 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 and then don't. 365 days a year. But then even among those, they argued constantly about which laws were weighty and more important and which laws were kind of lighter and not as significant and important, and they could never decide. And so the context of this discussion is actually very germane for these religious leaders. And so they come and they ask Jesus, thinking he's not going to get it right, what is the greatest commandment? Which, fascinating, Jesus simply responds with, go figure, the right answer now, we all say it's the right answer because we know, because that's what the Bible says. But Jesus, fascinating, out of all the 613 laws he could have chosen, he goes right to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and he recites what's called the Shema. Say it with me. Shema. You just learned Hebrew. The Hebrew word means here. Here, which is the first word in the Shema, which every Jewish, Orthodox, committed person would recite in the morning, and in the evening, they would write it on a little script of paper, roll it up like a scroll and put it in a mezuzah and it would stand or sit on the doorpost of their home. If you go to Israel today, some of you are going with Darren and some of the others, I think coming up when, February? To Israel, you will see them. You'll see them on the elevators. You'll see them on the doorposts of hotels. They post it on their doors because this is the greatest commandment. It's the Shema. But then Jesus does something that nobody else ever did before. He goes to Leviticus 19 verses 18. And he couples with the law of loving God, the law of loving others. And he says, this combination is the greatest commandment. Notice the third exchange. The self-righteous Rudy Giuliani the teacher, the attorney, you would think that from the group he's representing that he's going to somehow come at Jesus. But his response is a humble affirmation. Simply, he agrees. He says, Jesus, in front of his peers, you're right. I agree. Profound. But then Jesus responds in verse 34, and he gives this conflicting assessment. With regard specifically to the proximity of position of where the scribe is at that moment in relation to the kingdom of God. And he says in this conflicting way something that is incredibly good news, and on the immediate heels of it, bad news. The good news is this. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wow. How many of you would like to be not far from the kingdom of God? I don't know about you, but I love being close to good things. 
When you are not far from something, it has the insinuation that you are close to something. To illustrate this, Tammy and I were in Orlando last week, and one of the days we thought we might want to go to the Disney parks. We had actually lived there for four years. We've been there before. We decided not to, but I reminded myself of the time that when the Animal Kingdom had just opened up, there was the big, bad, baddest, the estest ride of all of the park called Everest. And it is a roller coaster. Any Everest groupie? Yeah, there we go. So it was one of the first couple of weeks that this park had opened up the park, but the ride had opened up. And so, of course, we and everybody else in Central Florida began to stand in line to ride Everest. We were so psyched. You know, Disney people are so deceitful. It's terrible what they do. You get in line, and to what you can see, there's like 10 lines that zigzag, and then it kind of disappears into a building, which you think the roller coaster is pulling up right there, and you get on. So for 30 minutes, we wait in the 10-line zigzag, and then we get into the building, and it looks like the, the Sea of Galilee filled with people just zigzagging back and forth and they put these little cheap exhibits up to kind of distract you from getting ticked off that you're having to stand in line for so long. And then you disappear out of that building into another building and it seems like there's 10 buildings of these zigzag lines of hundreds of people before you can actually get up to ride the roller coaster. We had been in line for probably two to two and a half hours and had gotten up to where we're actually in the line where you actually step into the bays, Right? And then you come in and then you step in. We're getting up to the bay and all of this, we're so close, so close. They shut the ride down. The coaster had somehow defaulted and, and actually on the big ascent, it, it had stopped there. It took four hours for uh, security personnel to get up there and walk everybody down. To this day, I remember this because folks, I was so close. But do you know I have never been on that ride? Never ridden it. I was so close, people. But I never made it. You see, the good news is it is fun to get close to something. When you're on vacation as a kid and you're driving clear across the country, how far do we have to go? We're getting closer. Okay, good. And then when your dad actually says, we're really close, how close, dad? Within five minutes, you surge with adrenaline and excitement. You're so close. That's the good news. The bad news it's almost hauntingly ominous. Being not far from means not in. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is not horseshoes and hand grenades. Close, it's not enough. So I want to consider two questions. What is it that, that Jesus is inferring that has brought this man close? If you read on, we won't look at the text right now for time's sake. If you go down about two paragraphs from this text, Jesus talks about the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the group that this man comes from, and he puts them on blasts. He literally says, you people are worthy of the greatest condemnation. This is one of those guys. And yet out from that kind of group, Jesus in a sense commends him and says, you are not far. So what brought this man close? I want you to think back and look with me in that paragraph. If it's here up on the screen, I believe. Let's go back to the main uh, text in verse 32 and following. Follow along as I recite and read off of these. Here's what this man is actually assenting to and is saying. He's saying... I agree with you, Jesus, and quote, I believe there is a God. That's good. 
He goes further, insinuated here is that this God is only one God. I believe there's only one God. If you travel outside of America, especially to third world countries, polytheism is everywhere. There are multiple gods. The Hindu gods, you can't even count the number of how many gods there are that the Hindus have to worship and plead with and ask for forgiveness from. This guy says, no, there's one God, and it's the God of Israel. That's the God I'm worshiping, the God I want to love with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He goes on further, and he says, I actually believe the Bible. Now, the portion that he had at that time would have been the Tanakh, the Old Testament for the, the Jews and the Israelites. But specifically, he's saying, yes, I believe the Bible. I believe I should, and you should love God and love other people. He believes the scriptures. He goes further, and it's interesting, he connects that his religion and his external practice is actually weighted in the internal, not the external. This is amazing. He goes a step further, and he goes on record, and he says, Jesus, you're right, publicly in front of his peers, he expresses that he likes Jesus. This guy's a fan of Jesus. This sounds like it could be any number of thousands of church members sitting in the pews of our churches right now across America. Believe in God. One God. God of Israel. Believe the Bible. I think that religion is more about the internal than the external. And I like Jesus. And yet, he's not far from the kingdom of God. He's only close. So what kept him out? I want to submit to you, it's the same thing that keeps every single one of us out. I'm going to make up a word. If we talk about this superlative desire to make everything the est, let's refer to it as estiness. Okay? We're going to talk about the inadequacy of estiness. Here it is. Estiness is not the same thing as righteousness. Your greatest and best efforts to satisfy God's commands, they're not enough. Oh, they'll get you close. But you're not in. I want us to go back and think about how Jesus answered this question as to what the greatest command is, the, the Shema in Leviticus 19.18. We would think that the emphasis of that command would be on heart, soul, mind, strength, Right? Actually, in the Hebrew, the emphasis is not there. It's on four other words. All have three letters, same exact word. What is it? All. We could say the command in this way. All we need to do to reference this greatest command of all the commands, all we need to say is all, 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 all. Superlative, 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 superlative. Now take all, 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 all and measure up your efforts to do all, 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 all. Some of us in here are only going to be able to say some, 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 and some. Some others of you may be able to say more, 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 more. And one of you, there's always one, most, 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 most. But all of your sums, mores, and mosts are not all. God has given you and me a command that we cannot fulfill. Simply, our best efforts are not enough. 
So why did this scribe, why did he get so close, but what was keeping him from getting in? Let me say it this way. What stood between this man and the kingdom of God is the same thing that may be standing between you this morning in the kingdom of God. And that's the Rubicon of faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, I just used a word that some of you may understand as history buffs. During this exact time that Jesus is standing having this exchange with the scribe, Julius Caesar is in northern Italy called Gaul. It is a Roman province outside of Rome proper in Italy. He is a governor of Gaul and he is a military commander of thousands of Roman soldiers. What's interesting at this time, 10 years later in fact, after this incident, after Jesus dies, Julius Caesar marches down south toward Rome. But one of the northern boundaries of Rome proper was a river called the Rubicon. It's not a very big river. In fact, it's about 12 to 15 feet wide. You can walk across it. The water at certain times is up to your ankles, maybe to your shins. It's not an impressive river. It's not an ominous river. It's a little simple river that simply marked a boundary. But here's the power. Roman law said this, you can be a governor, you can be a general of a commanding army, but when you come into Rome proper and you cross over the Rubicon, you must surrender your authority and your rights. If you're a commanding general of an army, when you cross the Rubicon, you are no longer a general of an army. You are a simple, ordinary citizen in full subjection to the authority of Rome. If any commander came across that river and did not relinquish his soldiers who also had to submit themselves, not to that general, but to Rome, it was considered treason. They were hunted down and slaughtered. History goes on to tell us that Julius Caesar came to that river. He paused briefly. There are movies that are about this. He paused, and then he made a famous statement that said this, the die is cast. And now this metaphor of Rubicon means the point of no return. Because he knew in defiance when he crossed across that river with all of his soldiers, and Pompey is on the run, he knew that he potentially could die, and die he would. Even though he became dictator, he was later assassinated. And we remember now in the story of Julius Caesar, the tragedy of his life. I want to submit to you that this scribe and perhaps someone here this morning, the only thing that stands between you and the kingdom of God is not what you believe. It's not even, it's not even the sincerity in which you believe it. Your heart is sincere. Your heart seems to be pure and good. In fact, maybe you would even say, maybe you wouldn't say I'm the most, 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 but I'm, the, I'm constantly striving more and more and more and more and more. But you have yet to cross the Rubicon of faith. You say, what is faith? I think we, I think we minimize and we, we cheapen faith. We preach about faith. We talk about faith. And it's almost as if someone who's close says faith. Faith in Jesus? Well, yeah, I like Jesus. Yeah, I'll, I'll put my faith in Jesus. Do we realize we can't do that in of ourselves? Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you're saved through faith, but it is the, it's a gift, not out of you, but from God offered to you. It's not yours. You cannot muster up enough faith to get into the kingdom of God. It's offered to you. So think of it this way. God gives us the greatest command. And he says, all, 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 all. None of us are able to fulfill 
His law alone keeps us from entering the kingdom of God. And then on top of that, he says, you've got to cross over through faith, which means relinquish, surrender. My authority, gone. My rights, gone. I'm going to share something with you that I'm a little hesitant to share, but this is now an insight. It's just personal to me. It's transparent um, in how God has touched my heart through this text this week. Please look for the best in what I'm about to say. For those of us who are in the kingdom already, do you realize that that surrender piece, that authority relinquishing piece doesn't stop? It continues on in humility and repentance, even as a citizen of the kingdom in a very maybe cheapened way, limited, minimized way, and yet this is how God touched my heart. That is this, and that was two years ago, I had to cross the Rubicon to come into Conduit Church. You see, for 15 years prior to this, I was a senior pastor. Coming into a position where there's already a senior pastor. And I knew in my head what that needed to look like, but do you realize it's been a struggle for me at times where in my brokenness, Having already entered in the kingdom of God, it's different not being the person who's always making the decision. I don't mean that in any way to be critical of this ministry. I love you, Conduit, and Darren, and all my pastor colleagues. God has now asked me to be in a supportive role, one of which is a blessing and a privilege, but there are moments, even in my brokenness, where that authority, as I step up to the Rubicon River, it's like, relinquish? I don't want to relinquish. It's a struggle. Do you, do you understand? Do you hear that? And in a small way, perhaps there's somebody sitting here right now. God desires for you to cross over into the kingdom. But you're standing there and you're holding on to something. And you're saying, but I don't want to. I get that. So many of us get that. But until you let go of that, God cannot have you and cannot, cannot give to you all of him. Here's what's fascinating. So God has this command that keeps us all out. He has this river, if you will, this Rubicon of faith in Jesus Christ, which requires release, relinquishing, that's repentance, and then receiving. And here's what's awesome at Christmas. God knew we couldn't cross the Rubicon. There ain't no way. So what did he do? He reverse engineered the whole directional thing of crossing over. Instead of us coming to him, what did he do? He came to us. How did he do that? He had to relinquish, surrender over his rights and his authority. He emptied himself, and he became man. Gross. I don't want my Jesus to be like me. And that's what's fascinating. Jesus was every bit just like me, but he was all, 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 all. He fulfilled the greatest command, because that's the kind of love that he, as God, is in conjunction with his Father, who is also God in the Trinity. Not only did he fulfill it, but he actually paid the penalty and the price for me just being some, 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 some. And then he said, if you'll just simply receive what I offer you, you will be hid, Colossians 3 says, in me. And when I cross back over, I raise from the dead and I ascend from this earth. And I'm seated at the right hand of my father. And my father has given me all authority in heaven and in earth. 
you come with me. Your record, my record. It's all about the est of God and not our sum. I want to close with, let, let me share this scripture real quick, if we can put that up from 1 John. It's, I took just a few verses of a long passage. So this is John, one of the guys that would have been standing, listening to this exchange between the scribe and, and Jesus. And we think about this love, it's just so fascinating to me that God gave us this command that he knew we could not fulfill. It's like, why'd you do that? But then I started thinking through this. Do you realize love is not something you do? It's something that you become because love is not an it. It's not a what. It's a who. It's not something we do. It's something we become. In the King James, which I like, the very first word of the King James, it says, herein. So in answer to the question, where is love? What is this love? Where is it that is all, 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 all? John answers and says, here it is. This is love. All ears, right? Okay, I want to know. Not that we loved God, that's not where it's at, but that he loved me. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for my sins. Who, what is love? God is love. And when we become hid in him, crossing the Rubicon in him of faith and repentance, relinquish, surrender, he, because he loved us, we then begin to become love to him and to my brothers and sisters and my neighbors. That's Christmas. Amazing, right? So I want you to consider just briefly right now, as kindly, as kindly as I can say this, would you consider your current proximity to the kingdom of God? You're one of three places. In, not far, far. Can I just, as a footnote, tack this in there? You would, you would think that maybe if you're not in, the place to be between the two not far and far would be not far. Do you know the warnings of scripture are always to the ones who are not far, who are close? Jesus talks about a day where many are going to come to them and they're going to start arguing their case saying, but Jesus, we were really close to you. Really, really close. We did this, 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 and this, and this. And he's going to say, I never, I never knew you. So I want to first ask the question to anyone who's here right now and perhaps church, faith, religion, all this that you're obviously pondering because you're here, you would consider yourself not close. You're far. You're messed up. You're not more, more, or most, most. You're, you're at least maybe some, 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 some of the times. You are a wreck. Shame, guilt, you name it, you're there. Long ways away from the kingdom. Can I share this with you? What Jesus has done, it does not matter how far away you are because you don't have to clean up your life first to get to be not far and close. Jesus meets you where you are. That's the power of the gospel. He comes to you. You don't come to him. He invites you to accept his all, 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 all. If you're far this morning, don't ever try to be close. Just relinquish and receive. And Jesus 
and takes you across the Rubicon into the kingdom of God forever. If you're close this morning, perhaps you can check, check, check. Yeah, I I believe in God. I believe in one God. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe the Bible. I believe that it's not about religion. In fact, death to religion and its law keeping. Amen. Check. I really like Jesus. I love to sing songs about Jesus. I love to hear about Jesus. I love to read my Bible and read about Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. You're not far. Would you please consider the gift? Let Jesus take you across the Rubicon so that you're in, not just close, but in. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher, they say, or not the greatest, but the prince of. I don't know where that rates in the estness of all of it. I'm going to just close by reading what he preached back in the late 1800s at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which I've been to in London, where throngs of people, 10, 12,000 people would, would just pack into this building, hanging off the rail of the balcony to listen to him preach. He preached from this text, Mark 12, 34, and here's how he closed his sermon. Now, as a, as a warning, there's, there's a little bit of a bite and a sting to this. Um, I, I get this. I grew up in what we call hellfire brimstone preaching. Which sometimes emphasize rather than the, what a good, good news. But sometimes we talk all about the good news and we fail to remind people that if you're just close, then you, you don't get in. And what happens if you're not in? There's a consequence for rejecting the love of God. So, words of Spurgeon, I say them to you as kindly as I can from my heart. Spurgeon concludes, I was thinking what an awful thing it would be if those who are now not far from the kingdom were told by the Lord, you shall stay there forever. You who heard the gospel and did not accept it, you must stop where you are. Halt, sir, not a step more. Close to the gates of heaven, but you, you stop there. To hear its music forever and to gnash your teeth forever because you cannot join in it. To hear the songs of the righteous while you wail forever. To know the brightness of bliss, but to be yourself in the black darkness forever. To be within an inch of heaven and yet in hell. The living water flowing at your feet and yet your tongue forever parched. The bread of life nigh at hand and yet you cannot eat. Oh, think of it. Eternally not far from the kingdom. Then the hope. If you any of you, if you would wish it not to be so, oh, be not out of Christ another minute. May God's spirit enable you to leap right away from your undecided condition into the living faith and loving surrender to Jesus. And then he gave four lines of a poem. So near to the kingdom Yet what dost thou lack? So near to the kingdom, what keepeth thee back? Renounce every idol, though dear it may be, and come to the Savior 
now who is pleading with thee. Would you bow with me? Thank you, Father, for cr crossing over to find us, awaken us, convict us, and save us. And for all who are in the kingdom this morning, what a wonderful reminder that we didn't cross over. We couldn't. We can't. But our God, unlike any other God, the one true God, he left heaven and he came to us. And we just simply declare our praise to you. But, oh, Lord, I don't know the hearts of any man, woman, or child here, but you do. And if there's someone right now sitting in the seat of this room and yet also seated so close to the kingdom of God, Father, would you enable them by the gift of repentance and the gift of faith to relinquish and surrender and receive to become hidden in Christ. May Jesus be so much more than a fan. Save that one. And the one who's far, who's perhaps even losing hope and is desperate, may they see Jesus in all of his love because love is him, not what we do for him. May they not try one second to clean up any part of their heart, but just let the blood of Jesus wash over and cleanse them. And may you do that work now. Before we close and say amen, if there is one here this morning, God and his words have prompted you, you have questioned, you have desire to take a next step, to understand, to pursue, to receive this gift, would you please not go another minute? Talk to one of us, someone near you. Someone here knows who Jesus is. They would love to tell you about him. Do that, please, before you go. And all those who are in the kingdom, who understand this wonderful power and majesty and dominion of our Lord, both now and forevermore, would say, Amen. Amen.